Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. We start off this week's show with a roundup of prison disturbances compiled by Perilous Chronicle. Here's their summary of prisoner agitation for May 2021. KOAM-TV reported a disturbance at Ottawa County Jail in April 2021, in which detainees caused thousands of dollars in damage to the jail. They started fires, broke windows, and damaged pipes in the ceilings. The reason for their actions remains unreported. On May 1st, protests inside and outside of Southern State Correctional Facility in Springfield, Vermont, caused a disturbance, according to the Vermont Department of Corrections, that led to a full lockdown of the facility. At least five ICE detainees have been charged with rioting at Bergen County Jail in New Jersey after a disturbance on May 3rd. According to reports, quote, When the detainees were ordered to disperse, they allegedly surrounded the officers and refused to return to their cells for lockdown. This incident coincides with several protests over the past few weeks outside of the facility, demanding that the jail break its contract with ICE. According to the Barton Prison Solidarity Group, approximately 20 prisoners at Niagara Correctional Centre in Ontario launched a hunger strike in the first few days of May to oppose a newly installed phone system that will make communication with loved ones even more costly and difficult. On May 7th, an unknown number of prisoners were involved in a disturbance at Spalding County Jail in Georgia. Prisoners attempted to barricade doorways and block security cameras before a SWAT team was called in to secure the unit. In Woodville, Texas, two people escaped from the Tyler County Jail on May 12th. They were both recaptured about 50 miles from the jail on the same day. On Thursday, May 13th, Two detainees escaped Rowan County Detention Center in Salisbury, North Carolina. The two were recaptured soon after escaping. On May 24th, two people escaped from Cherokee County Jail. They were recaptured in Ottawa County, Oklahoma, four days later on May 28th. On May 25th, detainees were involved in a disturbance at Carrizales Rucker Detention Center in Brownsville, Texas. SWAT and the Correctional Emergency Response Team were called in after, quote, inmates became belligerent against detention officers. On May 28th, two people escaped from Walsh County Jail, North Dakota. The effort to recapture the two escapees required the involvement of nine different law enforcement agencies. They were eventually recaptured after attempting to break into cars near the jail that evening. During the month of May, Several prisoners at Birdie Correctional Institution in North Carolina went on hunger strike for six days against poor conditions due to COVID-19. They demanded proper PPE, cleaning supplies, face masks, and hand soaps. Some of these demands were met at the end of their hunger strike, but according to a report from an organizer in the prison, the prison emergency response team was called in, quote, and forcibly removed and beat some of us. This led to our fellow convicts flooding their cells and refusing cell searches. 
This week, we speak with Lauren Regan, the executive director of the Civil Liberties Defense Center. Regan has been on the show before to discuss state repression and her efforts to support people facing political charges. She returns today to talk about the CLDC and specifically Eric King, an anarchist prisoner housed at FCI Inglewood. King was arrested in 2014 after he carried out an attack against a politician's office in solidarity with the Ferguson uprising. As an anti-racist prisoner, he's been subjected to repeated assaults by white supremacists. Regan describes the case, the struggle over his conditions and safety inside, and his upcoming release. We'll finish the interview next week on our June 11th episode. June 11th is the day of solidarity with long-term anarchist prisoners, including Eric King, Marius Mason, and others. My name is Lauren Regan. I'm the executive director and one of the senior staff attorneys at the Civil Liberties Defense Center. We're an activist, lawyer, nonprofit organization that has defended progressive social change activists around the country in criminal cases. We also sue police and government agencies for violating the rights of activists, and we defend them against slap suits, which are strategic lawsuits against public participation, which is basically when corporations sue activists or organizations to try and shut them up. Uh, We have been an organization for 18 years now. We are based in unceded Kalapuya territory, and I think we have defended over 4,500 activists at this point around the country, and we do that for free. So probably a little over a year ago, Eric King's previous attorney was having some health issues and they were seeking replacement criminal defense counsel for him. We had certainly known of his arrest and prosecution back when the original incident that led him to be imprisoned occurred in Kansas. We didn't have any role in that case, but when he was ultimately charged in federal court in Colorado with assaulting a correctional officer, uh, we were asked to come into that criminal defense case. And then once we started taking a look at the criminal discovery and working with Eric on the criminal case, we realized a couple of things. Number one, that there was just an egregious pattern of civil rights abuses that had occurred to him. And number two, that something immediately needed to be done to better protect him from violence and retaliation that was ongoing by the Bureau of Prisons staff themselves, but also was being encouraged and allowed to be perpetuated by other prisoners primarily white supremacist prisoners within the various correctional facilities that he ended up in. And so it became kind of a priority for us to try and figure out how to best address the systemic violations that were going on with regard to his situation with the goals of better protecting him from violence, but also trying to shed light on what many people know to be this like systemic system of collaboration between racist or white supremacist prison guards and white supremacist 
or racist prisoners within a lot of the jails and prisons around the country. For people that aren't too familiar with the U.S. prison system, oftentimes people who are incarcerated end up basically clicking up into various gangs, often based on racial identity and for what is kind of perceived as self-protection from racial violence within the prison system. And white nationalist, white supremacists, far right, you know, neo-Nazi types of prisoners are really notorious within the Bureau of Prisons. And in part, the reason that this has become so acculturated is because a lot of people who are in the federal prison system are there for a long time, sometimes life. And so the prison system kind of takes on some of the worst components of society at large and just becomes this like magnified microcosm of racism and violence that we also see perpetuated outside of prison. And so Eric, when he was originally prosecuted and convicted, it was for a crime that was done in solidarity with Ferguson and with the Brown murder and his sentencing statements and a lot of the political work around his case at that time was overtly anarchist and overtly anti-racist. And for a white person coming into the federal prison system as an anti-racist always poses additional concerns and challenges because the white supremacist gangs, which hold a lot of power within inmate populations, see them as a, quote, race traitor, and they are often targeted for violence by those gangs, but they also don't often have any other group of prisoners to have their back. And so often they are isolated, they are unsafe or insecure within the facility. And we also know that those white supremacist prison members are known for extreme violence, including killing inmates. And we also know that the rates of prosecution and accountability for those acts of violence are lower. And in part, we believe that that is because very often the Bureau of Prisons correctional officers turn a blind eye toward these acts of violence because they tacitly support or approve of those acts of violence and often hold their own racist views that also results in systemic racism toward prisoners of color. And part of the reason that we decided that this lawsuit was so important to bring at this time is because we know in the wake of the George Floyd uprisings and the rebellion that's gone on for the last year in the aftermath of his murder, that there are a lot of people of color who are facing federal prosecution regarding their actions during those uprisings. And some of them are looking at significant federal prison time as well. And our hope is that by bringing this lawsuit and shining a light on this system, exposing it and ultimately demanding for change and accountability within it, 
our hope is that maybe the system will be a little bit safer in the event that there is a wave of activists that will be forced into the federal prison system. You know, we are an abolitionist organization. We understand that, you know, that this is not the end all for the type of change that needs to be happening within the federal prison system and the criminal punishment system in general. This is about emergency first aid for people who are at grave risk. You know, we want to keep Eric King alive until he is released in 2023. And there is not a whole lot that we or the public can do to ensure his safety behind bars. And so this is just one way in using the tools that are available uh, within the legal system to try and do something to mitigate the danger and the harm that he faces. So when you are suing a federal agency, you know, as opposed to state and local cops, there is a different rubric that the law requires. You know, if we were suing a county sheriff or a city cop for this type of violence, we would do it under um, the Federal Civil Rights Act, um, which is Section 1983. But when you're suing a federal agency, the feds made it enormously more difficult to use the legal system to redress harm done by federal employees like the Bureau of Prisons Correctional Officers. They limited the ways in which we can sue them. They took away a lot of the incentive to encourage lawyers to take cases like this. You know, for instance, under Section 1983, the regular police misconduct statute, there is a fee shifting provision, which basically means that when you take that case on, you don't get paid. Uh, you know, your client almost never has money to pay the attorney. But in the event that you win, uh, the court will order the defendants to pay the attorney fees and costs. And so it might take five years, but there is at least some anticipation that the attorney will be compensated for their work and that any costs that are incurred in bringing the lawsuit, things like filing fees and depositions and investigators and experts, that those costs would potentially be recouped in the event that you win. So if it's a strong case, it's worth the gamble to lawyers to take the risk of not getting paid. But under the Prison Litigation Reform Act and with these Bivens claims as they're called, you know, with regard to federal agencies, that has been largely eliminated. That makes it so that there aren't a whole lot of lawyers that can afford to take these types of cases on. In fact, the only reason that the CLDC is able to take a case on like this is because we are a nonprofit organization. And thanks to our donors and supporters that often give us a donation every month, we are able to pay ourselves basic public interest salaries and then take cases on for free like this. 
So the lawsuit that we brought on behalf of Eric has several different components. Some of the claims are these federal civil rights claims, like we talked about. And the heart of those claims are basically trying to redress the collusion between the correctional officers within the prisons and the white supremacist or the, the white nationalists that by working hand in hand have assaulted Eric time and time again. In addition, you know, Eric has been in segregated housing, basically what's called the SHU, a secure housing unit for over a thousand days at this time. And he has never been told why he was sent to the SHU. He's never been allowed to challenge that placement through hearings and other means. And that's in direct violation of all the Bureau of Prisons policies. You know, it's not much, but when a prisoner is disciplined by the system, they are supposed to be provided a written document that tells them what they did, what rule they violated. And if they contest it, then they have the right to a hearing, uh, which of course is stacked against them, but at least it's some semblance of due process in order to you know, make the system at least give some rationale for why the person is being punished. Um, there are only about 80 prisoners in the United States that have been in segregated housing like this for around the same amount of time as Eric has. Uh, and that is one of the other claims. You know, they have basically shoved him in an isolation cell where he's not allowed to have access to his family. Uh, he's not allowed to have access to, you know, a lot of different materials, you know, some of the, the very few privileges, quote unquote, that someone within the, the prison system has, have been taken away from him. And we know that this is retaliatory punishment for his anti-racist beliefs, which he has held openly and quite strongly, even while incarcerated. You know, he has not bowed his head to the pressures that have been applied from white supremacist or racist individuals within the system. And what they're basically trying to do is isolate him from the rest of the prison community, as well as from his family, et cetera, in the hopes that other inmates will see how his treatment has been degraded and they will be less likely to act like him or act in solidarity with him. So back in March of 2016, Eric King was sentenced to 10 years in prison for an attempted arson of an elected official's office in Kansas City, Missouri. The alleged arson occurred back in 2014. As I mentioned, it was done in solidarity with the Ferguson uprising for Michael Brown. And at his sentencing, Eric made statements um, this is a quote from the sentencing. The government in this country is disgusting. The way they treat poor people, the way they treat brown people, the way they treat everyone that's not in the class of white and male is disgusting, patriarchal, filthy, and racist. And so because of that overtly political nature of his crime and his conviction, and you know, because he is a small framed white man talking about white supremacy and solidarity with people of color, within a prison system that exacerbates those racial tensions, Eric was exceptionally vulnerable to abuse from the moment he started serving his sentence. 
When he first got sentenced, he was moved to FCI Englewood in August of 2016. He was housed in the general population and you know, had no discipline reports, was never placed on, you know, in segregation. Uh, but then starting in 2018, Eric began to be targeted in a what can only be described as a pattern of harassment and abuse by various Bureau of Prison employees. In 2018, Eric was summoned to a lieutenant's office within the correctional office to be interviewed. And he was going to be interviewed by this Lieutenant Wilcox, who is notorious within this prison for being a real bully and kind of a tough guy. And he arrives at the lieutenant's office and he is kept waiting outside of the office. And eventually, defendant Wilcox emerges from this office, uh, walks up to Eric with another correctional officer. And as soon as Eric saw that it was Lieutenant Wilcox that wanted to talk with him, he knew that this was not going to be a good situation and that he was in physical danger. Eric had had a couple of other run-ins with Wilcox in the past, and he knew that uh, Wilcox was, you know, kind of a bully and, and a physical kind of brawler. So Eric's fears were made even worse when one of the correctional officers asked defendant Wilcox if he needed any help. And Wilcox started laughing and said, no, you don't want to see this. So then right after making that statement, Wilcox orders King to accompany him to a room for questioning. Eric knew from talking with other prisoners that there were two rooms that the lieutenants took prisoners into for questioning. One was a small sized office with cameras positioned at the entrance. And the other was basically a storage lock, like a storage closet. Uh, it had lockers and brooms and other maintenance items, but most significantly, it had no cameras nearby or within it, which is pretty unusual in a prison. You know, there are cam security cameras everywhere, primarily for the safety of the correctional staff. And so to take an inmate into an interview space, allegedly, that had no cameras, there's not any purpose. You know, there was no reason that he couldn't use the actual interview room that did have security cameras pointing on it. Eric knew that the small office was where legitimate investigations and questioning happened, but the storage area was where correctional officers took inmates to harass or like attack them um, without having it on film without having a record of it. So as Wilcox started directing Eric toward the storage area, Eric immediately feared that he was about to be attacked and to be assaulted. So Wilcox and another one of the defendants, um, whose last name is Comrade, uh, escorted Eric into this storage area and then immediately backed him into a corner. Um, Wilcox began screaming at Eric, cursing at him, threatening him, saying that he wasn't a real man. And defended comrade just stood there and did nothing uh, and just sort of watched as Wilcox harassed Eric. Then Wilcox asked comrade to leave. And he said um, that he could, quote, handle this himself. And comrade left. And at that point, 
Eric realized that the only reason that a correctional officer was going to be left in a small room without cameras by themselves was because he was about to be attacked and assaulted. And so sure enough, as soon as Comrade left the room, Wilcox moved even closer to Eric um, so that their chests were literally touching each other. Eric tried to take several steps back in order to avoid physical contact with Wilcox. Uh, Wilcox continued to curse, calling Eric a terrorist and all sorts of other things. At that point, Wilcox shoved Eric and Eric fell back and hit the wall. And then Wilcox punched Eric in the face twice. And there's photographic evidence of Eric with a black eye. Immediately upon being attacked and physically punched in the face, Eric acted in self-defense and allegedly punched the deputy to try and protect himself. The deputy fell down, immediately got up, um, you know, all hell breaks loose. He starts, you know, yelling for backup. Allegedly, the strike was to his nose, which of course, you know, normally will gush blood. So there's blood happening. A bunch of other correctional officers rush into the room. Comrade returns to the room and he finds Eric standing calmly with his hands behind his head. And despite the fact that Eric was not an active threat, he gets thrown to the ground. He is assaulted multiple times while being held down by Comrade and other FCI Florence correctional officers. They kick him, they punch him all while he's being held down. Then they bring in what's called a striker chair or a restraint chair, and they strap him to the chair. The whole time, Eric is not resisting at all. You know, he recognized what was happening and what was going to happen. He is certainly in fear for his life because now he is completely vulnerable. He is strapped down to a chair. He's been brutalized over and over again by a crowd of correctional officers that are just, you know, kicking and punching him. And he is wheeled off in this chair to a segregation cell where they place him in four point restraints which is where they basically tether your hands and feet as like a punitive retaliation. He's not out of control. He's not a threat to any of them. There was really no reason for this to happen except as basically a mode of torture. So four-point restraints are intended to be used solely for the purpose of restraining and calming an out-of-control prisoner. And there are a lot of rules and regulations if and when four-point restraints are going to be used, including the fact that the warden is the only one that can make the decision to place a prisoner in four-point restraints. And to our knowledge, that was never done in this situation. And the warden was never involved in any of the decisions to place Eric in these four-point restraints. We believe that they used those restraints solely as a retaliatory, humiliating, punitive measure. They stripped off all his clothes, leaving him naked and exposed. They left him in the four-point restraints for over eight hours. They didn't give him any clothing or a blanket. During the first hour of those eight hours, one of the correctional officers, uh, his last name is Jaconi, and another unknown correctional officer just basically stood over him verbally and physically torturing Eric. Jaconi first approached Eric who was literally helpless and defenseless because of the four-point restraints. And Jaconi put his hands over Eric's mouth, cutting off his breathing for several minutes. 
And Eric was basically terrified in significant pain and obviously thought he was about to die as uh, Giacconi tried to suffocate him. Giacconi and another one of the correctional officers continued to verbally taunt him and insult him. They threatened to have him raped by other prisoners. They threatened to send him to another prison facility and to tell the violent prisoners there to kill him as soon as he got to the yard. And that's significant because that actually ends up happening to Eric. They told Eric that that kind of retaliation was quote, street justice and what he deserved. They used a shield and tried to also suffocate him. It's stuff out of, um, you know, what we learned about with regard to like Abu Ghraib and, uh, you know, and Guantanamo, you know, multiple times attempted to stop him from breathing. And so throughout this entirety, Eric was in fear for his life. And of course, as one would expect with this type of like outrageous violence and misconduct, it appears that the Bureau of Prisons has tampered with the video footage of Eric's confinement in the four-point restraints, which is also strictly against BOP policies and regulations. You know, we believe that that footage has been removed to basically try to erase Giacconi's assault on Eric. This has been KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community.